0: The Plumley Pod, episode 19.
1: Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education, The Plumley Pod.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley. And this week, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Gloria Moss. Gloria Moss is an author, a highly experienced academic whose background is in organizing industry programs and blue-collar all the way through to senior management positions. She is the founder of thetruthuniversity.co.uk, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be having a discussion with her this morning about how she arrived in academia and, in particular, the troubles we are having now in our schools. Welcome Gloria and please can you tell us first of all a little bit about your background and how you arrived into academia.
1: Yes well we all have journeys that we follow don't we
0: and they take us in directions
1: that we don't always expect. So way back I was working in industry, I have a background in human resources studying, getting my qualification at the London School of Economics and I um Was working, I think, at the time at uh, Eurotunnel, which is the precursor to Eurostar, where I was in charge of management training, trying to create a single (laughs) management style between the French and the British, (laughs) despite hundreds of years of war between these two fine nations. And I was also in charge of language training, because my first degree was actually in um, French. And I wandered into uh, an art gallery. It was a watercolor exhibition, and The paintings didn't indicate price. So, short of buying the catalogue, there was no way of knowing what the paintings cost. So, I thought I'd just jot down the numbers of the paintings that appealed to me most. And when I did eventually look up these paintings, I was astonished to find that 80% of the paintings on my list had been created by women. Well, I imagined that maybe most watercolourists are females. So, in the end, I did buy the catalogue and looked through it, did some calculations, and I discovered two things. One is that, in fact, most watercolorists in that exhibition were men, not women. And secondly, when I did some statistical analyses, I discovered that my selection was off the wall statistically. I mean, to select predominantly female work in an exhibition where most paintings were by men was statistically extremely significant. Well, <laughs> I thought, well, maybe this is a well-known phenomenon that women prefer designs, paintings created by females. But when I did a literature search, I found that nobody had looked into this before. And so I thought, well, somebody's got to do this work. It's really important. Imagine the implications of this in a world where most purchases, 83%, in fact, are made by women, and in a world where most design is created by men. If most women prefer designs, visuals created by women, then we're not being well served since most designers in the hands of men. So this kick-started 20 years of research and kick-started a decision to leave industry and go into academia full-time. And in the course of that journey in academia, I pursued this research, gained a PhD. I produced something like 70 peer reviewed journal and conference papers, and six books, two of which are dedicated exclusively to this research on gender and design. There's a popular book amongst those two you might be interested in in having a look at this one. It's called Why Men Like Straight Lines and Women Like Polka Dots. And if you look at it, you enjoy it, it will take you into a completely new area. But one of the things that this research of 20 years showed quite unequivocally is that there are major differences in both the designs and pictures, graphic expression of men and women, boys and girls. Statistically speaking, from my own research, and I was looking at design, whether it was web design, graphic design, product design, the differences were as different statistically as you could possibly find. They were highly significant statistically. And the differences you might be asking, what were they? Well, they women tended to use vastly more colour, they used rounded shapes rather than straight lines, hence the title of that book: Why men like straight lines and women like polka dots. And the polka dots refers to the fact that men quite like undifferentiated surfaces without detail, whereas women tend to like to fill their space with detail, be it dots, polka dots, or Swirly lines, or whatever it is. And men's work tends to be more three dimensional, women's more two dimensional. And men and women tend to use different themes in their work. Women tend to use organic life, and men often illustrate their work with mechanical themes, cars, aeroplanes. So that was one of the findings that what men and women create is statistically vastly different. A second finding was. That in terms of preferences. And do you remember (laughs) I told you about my experience at the exhibition, which took me away from industry into research, and I'd found that I preferred paintings by women over those by men. Well, I did many subsequent studies on preference, and these had never been carried out before. It's astonishing, though. For some reason, I was the first person to conduct these studies, and I was... (laughs) <laughs> quite relieved in a way to find that other people were reacting in the same way that I had at that exhibition. Insofar as women tended to prefer designs created by women, and men tended to prefer designs created by men, and again, in statistical terms, these results were not marginally significant; they were extraordinarily significant. Point zero zero one for those people who've studied statistics. And so you could have no doubt about these differences. Now, you might be asking why. (laughs) This is a bit of a hot potato. Why? Because we're living in a world where we're told currently that there are no sex differences between men and women. So one has to tread with some caution when discussing this subject. If you dip into the um, psychology literature, what you find is that after height, differences in visuospatial skills, which is what I've been talking about, are the biggest of all the sex differences after height. And then if you dig deeper into the psychology literature, you find very strong evidence across many studies that men seem to have superior targeting accuracy to women. And that may be by virtue of the fact, again, an established fact that men's eyes are set three to five millimeters further apart than women's. This isn't conjecture, this is fact. And the fact that men's eyes are slightly further apart than women's gives them better stereoscopic 3D vision. There's also research coming out of America that suggests that up to 50% of women have a fourth color pigment. Men don't have more than three color pigments. Well, you're saying maybe, three or four pigments doesn't make that much difference, but indeed it does. (laughs) When you move from three to four color pigments, it's an exponential increase. And having four color pigments, which arguably up to 50% of women have, gives you access to hundreds of millions more colors than you would have if you had only three color pigments. And, well, this is established fact. So we can no longer say that men and women are identical, because that would be to fly in the face of the evidence across many studies in the psychology literature. What might be more open to doubt is the reasons for these differences. And we haven't got time to debate that today. You can find a chapter I've devoted to this in, well, several chapters across my books. But the theory I put forward is this. Could it be that these differences, which are recorded in the psychology literature, and the effects of which I believe are picked up by my research on gender and design. Could it be that these differences are the effect of a division of labor between men and women that operated for 99% of human history? And that division of labor was as follows. Men did the hunting. They were out for days at a stretch. They targeted prey at a distance. To do that, you need excellent targeting accuracy, but you don't need color vision. In fact, not having color vision gives you an advantage. And that may be the reason why the army goes out of its way to recruit people who are colorblind, which they do. So men's better targeting accuracy would give them an advantage in hunting. And women, well, what were they doing? They were the gatherers of the day, picking berries, and they needed to have very good color vision to discern ripe from unripe berries. And they were also the managers of the day because of course men were away hunting. So the women were not only managing the camp, they were the managers of all the adults and the children. So they needed very good color vision to to see if the children were about to um, spring a temperature. They needed to see if their cheeks were getting red. And they also needed to be able to see if the adults were getting a little bit hot under the collar. And incidentally, while on the subject, I've done some research on this, if you look at what anthropologists write, it seems that women were the original architects and builders of their societies. So it's very likely that women were not only the managers of the day, but also those responsible for creating the buildings and everything that went into those buildings. So in other words, to recognize sex difference is not to demean women. It's not to consign them to the kitchen. On the contrary, when we take the long view, and it was Sarah who brought up this point when we had an earlier discussion, sociologists tend to take a short view. But if we become sociologists across thousands of years of history, then it opens up our vistas. So that, that was uh, my background. I moved into academia, did this research on gender and design. And then when the going got really difficult, which it did because... We're living in a world that denies sex difference, which seemed extraordinary to me. I mean, one of the reasons I went into academia from industry and gave up a very good career was to get my work published. I got it published through peer review, published more than 70 peer review journal and conference papers, and I'm the author of six books. I was determined to get these findings published or perish. (laughs) It had to be put on the record. Because to deny these sex differences is to deny the truth and to deny fact. When the going got difficult, I moved into the area of leadership, which has always been an abiding interest of mine. I mentioned I started in human resources. I'm fascinated in organizations, what makes some unhealthy, what makes others healthy. I'm very interested in promoting healthy organizations. And so I did a lot of research on a wonderful form of leadership, inclusive leadership. that's another book I've written. you can it's a little bit expensive, published by Routledge, as many of my books are. But the nub of inclusive leadership is that with this you can enhance productivity, mental well-being, and motivation. Who could ask for more? This is best practice leadership, and it rests on fifteen attributes, one of which is empathy, another of which is confidence giving another of which is listening. Unfortunately, we live in a world where what we see often, whether it's at schools or universities or industry, is actually worse practice. It's the opposite of what I've talked about. And I thought that would be an easy ride, but that turned out to be, if anything, even more difficult than the um, research on gender. And I think Sarah and I will pick up on that when we're talking about universities in another one of our discussions. But I think we're here today Sarah, to talk about school
0: education. So over to you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for that breakdown. It's absolutely fascinating. To deny sex differences is to deny truth. I couldn't agree more. If we are going to deny such obvious truths, then what foundations do we have as a society? It's completely bonkers to me. Now, what I'm really interested in this moment in time is What is going on in schools? I know that you've been doing some research into textbooks, and I'd really like to hand over to you to describe what it is you've been doing and how you realised that there was a problem in the first place. Well, that's a really
1: fascinating question. And as with my first journey, which I think happened by accident after I wandered innocently into the exhibition of watercolourists, again, it was another accident, I think, that took me down this road. I had over the years taught children full-time or very part-time, but it was while I was helping somebody with their subsidiary French course at Oxford University, in fact, um, that I became aware of a potential problem with textbooks. And as I mentioned, my first degree was in French, and I thought this would be a great opportunity. The person was studying it, a subsidiary course, which was set at approximately A-level standard. And I thought this would be a really good opportunity to update my French because I'm not going to say how many years ago I did my French degree, but it was a few decades ago (laughs) and it was um, pre-digital age. So I thought, here's an opportunity to get up to date with my French. And um, as the weeks passed and I looked at the textbook, I became increasingly alarmed because what I was noticing was uncritical mention of a philosophy to wit that you can own nothing and be happy. And this was being repeated from chapter to chapter. You don't need to own a house. You can rent your property. You don't need to own a bike. You can rent your bike. And then there were dialogues, obviously created by the publisher, for example, a radio producer asking the question, why are older people more likely to believe fake news than younger people? And I thought, Since this book was aimed at younger people, this would be sowing the seeds of doubt across generations. And the younger people might be asking themselves, well, yes, you know, my parents don't necessarily believe what I believe. And so I think it was putting a wedge between generations. And yes, it is possible that older generations have different belief systems from younger people by virtue, perhaps, of their experience of living outside the EU. I think it was an older cohort that largely voted for Brexit. They'd known that life didn't stop when you didn't have a European Union because they'd lived that way for many years. And they had a different education system as well. They were following O levels rather than the CSEs and GCSEs that were introduced subsequently. So that was the wake up call to me. And I thought, well, if this French textbook is including what I would say is nothing short of propaganda, World Economic Forum propaganda, no less, you can owe nothing and be happy. Then what on earth is in other textbooks? So that was the driver. And just two background points that made me realize that it was worth looking into this. The first is that, I think it was the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who talked about the role that information plays in society. What he said was this, that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. In other words, you cannot be free and ignorant at the same time. And he went on to say that people cannot be safe without information. And so I was seeing information in the French textbook, which I thought was based on ignorance. As Jefferson said, we cannot be ignorant and free. We all want to be free. What were other textbooks telling us? Now we all know that the mainstream media. Well, we all know. I, I imagine that people who are visiting this podcast, Sarah's told me, you know, the sort of the audience that we have, that um, you'll no doubt have questions about the value of the mainstream media, and the mainstream media is run by just three groups. We're not going to go into that today. But the most widely used newspaper, oh, sorry, most widely read newspaper in Britain, as many of you know, is the Sun newspaper, which has a monthly readership of 38 million people. And we know that's owned by Murdoch. And some of us have concerns about that. But that's the size of the readership for Murdoch's paper, 38 million. And you might be alarmed to think that paper controlled by one person has such a vast readership. Well, if we move to schools, I did some rough and ready calculations. And I guess that the size of the school cohort, I'm talking secondary school at this point, over a 10-year period, is not, it's not dissimilar to that. It's about 35 million. So what I'm trying to say is that the mainstream media has a big audience, but so too do school textbooks. Around about 35 million young people will pass through school in Britain over a 10-year period. Um, Now, it was actually Ed Miliband's father, Ralph Miliband, um, who wrote alarmingly about the power of the media with its big reach to shape how we think about the world. Those were his words. He talked about the power of the media to shape how we think about the world. Given, as I say, that the school population over a 10-year period is pretty similar to that of the sun. We might have reason um, to think, well, we must look at school textbooks um, to see how they are shaping the minds of young people. And I would say, if anything, the shaping of the minds of young people is even more sinister uh, and more profound than the shaping of adult minds, because young minds, I don't know what you feel about this, Sarah, are are more vulnerable than older
0: minds. Yes,
1: we have a great responsibility in that regard. Yeah. So this is what kick-started a study into school textbooks. Um, I do hear from many parents that textbooks are not uh, universally used by schools. But on the other hand, I hear from parents that they are still being used. And they're probably the only handle that we have on what's actually going on in the classroom. Um, So... um, We undertook, and I say we, because uh, some people up near where I live, in Barnet, in northwest London, they contributed textbooks, hand-me-downs from their children. So I know that these textbooks were used in schools, and we also had discussions. And so what I'm about to say is based on a close look at textbooks that span the curriculum, everything from science, economics, economics. Maths, physics, well, that's part of science, isn't it? To um, the humanities, English, modern languages, history, and also geography. And it was a random sample of textbooks that I was looking at based on what was made available to me by um, people in the BASH group, Barnet Action Support Hub. By the way, before I, before I reveal... What what was found, I think perhaps just a few words on school education, which might be helpful. I'm sure many, many, many of you will be aware of this. But I think the government control of education, which is what we have in the world today, has its origin in Prussian education back in the um, early 19th century. And the Americans picked up on that beginning of the 19th century. And then based their government um, backed education, they based that on the Prussian system. And well, interesting that because Sean Taylor Gatto, many of you will know his work, what he wrote on the Prussian system was that it delivered on four things. It delivered obedient soldiers for the army, obedient workers, for mines, factories, and farms, obedient civil servants, and listen to this one, obedient citizens who thought alike on most issues. And so uh, achieving conformity in thought, word, and deed across a whole population. So the Americans picked up on this Prussian system, and it was in 1912 that Rockefeller weighed in And Gatto writes about this as well. And Rockefeller set up what was known as the General Education Board. And he wanted to control education. Maybe he'd seen what it it had achieved in Prussia, an obedient citizenship. And so um, he hired somebody called Frederick Gates, a reassuring Baptist minister, to oversee his general education board. Let me just quote from Gates's occasional letter number one, written in 1912. He talked about his dream, what he could achieve with limitless resources. A dream I'm sure Sarah and I often have. What could we achieve with limitless resources? I think our dreams would be a little bit different from those of Gates. So let me quote, let me quote Gates's dream. This is his dream. Rural folk would yield themselves with perfect docility to our moulding hand, unhampered by tradition. And he went on to say ominously, we shall not try and make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. And just six years later, in 1918, somebody called Dr. Inglis um, he wrote a book called Principles of Secondary Education, and he described the purpose of secondary education as being twofold, to establish fixed habits of reaction to authority, and secondly, to establish um, um, what he called the integrative function, which would be to make children as alike as possible. Is it a coincidence that this Dr. Inglis was put in charge of the secondary textbook publishing division of a major publishing house at the day, Houghton Mifflin? Well, he was put in charge of textbooks, and you might say the rest is history. That's by way of background. Um, we've seen that through Prussian education, through the American system established by Rockefeller, the objective was never to further the uh, individuality of the individuals going through schooling, children going through schooling. No, it was to create conformity, um, good citizens. And I noticed when reading a discussion paper, which you can find on the World Economic Forum site, they have a discussion paper on education. They've just reduced the objectives of education down to a few one of which is to create good citizens. And that's my words, not theirs. Second is to foster creativity. And the third is to foster collaborative working. Those are the three and only objectives set by the WEF, the World Economic Forum. They say that testing recaller facts will no longer be required. Well, I, ca- I can't imagine that Sarah would share these objectives. I certainly don't. I can't imagine that the people listening to us today do. But textbooks, we left it with Dr. Inglis, who was in charge of textbooks for a major publisher. Um, We've looked at what happened in Germany and America. What about Britain? Little has been written about um, what is actually going on in classrooms in Britain today. I think we can get a glimpse through looking at textbooks. So here we go. Um, Supplied with these textbooks, which were used um, by children, both in the state sector and in the independent sector, what we found were primarily four conclusions. First of all, they contained inaccurate information. The textbooks make assertions that are questionable in their accuracy, leaving the impression, I would say, that their purpose is one of advocacy rather than education. And I think this has serious implications in terms of the integrity of the textbooks, particularly with young minds, which, as as we said, are are malleable and vulnerable. And we have to be mindful of what what Lenin said, that a lie told often enough becomes the truth. So I say there's inaccurate information in the textbooks if it's repeated with sufficient uh, frequency, then this becomes the truth in young minds. Secondly, we found the omission of important information. The textbooks frequently omit to mention information that could easily contradict the facts that are presented there, um, suggesting extreme bias in terms of the information submitted in the textbooks. Thirdly, um, it, it seems that the learning is presented in a context which may actually confuse rather than help the learner. Um, And there are instances where the context is surprising or unhelpful. I'll come to some examples later on. And fourthly, um, the textbooks offer advice that does not promote integrity in learning. And again, I'll come back to that. So if you like, I can just flesh out some of these four points, Sarah, and then we can have a a discussion on your experiences of maths teaching my experiences of modern languages teaching for example uh, And there's a lot to be said about ma- modern languages teaching on many fronts um so let's try and just give you illustrations of these four points and then maybe we home in on maths and uh, modern languages and talk about positive where we move forward in the future um now that we've found out what's going on in Britain in terms of information in textbooks. So the first finding was in terms of inaccuracy of information in the textbooks. There are so many examples that there isn't time today to go through more, but if anybody's interested, please um, email me and I'll send you a copy of the full report and also a summary of the report. Uh, the email address to use is infotruthuniversity at protonmail dot com. I'll just say that again. Infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com. And sometimes emails go down. So let me give you another one just in case maybe you could write to both of these emails. I run uh, two conferences a year. One is questioning science, it's called, and the other one is called questioning history. Uh, Incidentally, we've got our next questioning science conference coming up in the Peaks District in August. uh, With some wonderful speakers: Mark Devlin, John Hamer, Clive DeCarl, Justin Walker, Gemma Cooper of Iconic, uh, and the people who attend are live ones. People like yourselves questioning all the time, and we market that under the name Learning Holidays. So, if you you would also like to address your email to learning holidays at protonmail.com, then you can be sure to reach me and I will immediately send you out a copy of the full report. So here's just some nuggets, really, from the full report. Um, first one, in a science textbook called Go Science, dating back to 2008, references made to um, the media. I'm just going to quote what that textbook writes about the media. And this is 14 years ago. So if they're writing about like this 14 years ago, goodness, what are they writing now? Um, Here's the quote. Every day we hear about real science on the news, read about it in newspapers or magazines, or view it on the internet. Some sources of information are more reliable than others. Well, I think we'd all agree up to this point, but we might diverge in terms of what they go on to state, which is this. If the science is being reported on a national news program or in a major newspaper, then the reporters will probably have checked the information to make sure it is correct. Information on the internet isn't always checked. People often put information that is wrong or silly on their web pages. If you come across websites with the words alternative, alt, or unofficial in their addresses, then the information may not be correct.
0: What do you think of that, Sarah? I think it's hilarious. All the people who want to say it's a complete coincidence, the uh, mainstream attitudes to people who ask important questions or interesting or different questions. They sort of have this belief that everything's accidental and coincidental. Well, look at what they were writing this long ago in in school textbooks. This is evidence of organised attacks on people who want to have control of their own minds, is it not? I would think
1: so. I would think so. And, And I believe that research is currently being undertaken by a professor of social psychology at Cambridge on how to stop just that kind of questioning. And many universities are involved in that research, including Oxford University and Bristol in UK and New York University in the US and a ton of others. This was reported by UK column. Uh, And I can send you the link if you're interested to find more about that research at Cambridge University. So we're talking about inaccurate information. I think most of us would agree that information on the media from 2008 is inaccurate. Other inaccuracies which are covered in the report, the full report, include um, 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 uncritical reliance on peer review system, uh, directing people uh, to, to um, support a piece of work because it's been through peer review. There is a growing literature that questions the integrity um, and reliability of peer review. So to to tell children that um, peer review is beyond reproach is inaccurate in the extreme. And then there's, of course, uh, information about climate change, which is presented uncritically, despite contradicting evidence. And When we turn to the history textbook, well, I mean, there's so many examples I could pull out, but I just want to pull out one which concerns the burning of the Reichstag building. Uh, This appears in a history GCSE textbook covering 20th century history from the period of the Second World War up to the end of the 20th century. And many, many of the people listening today will have heard of the burning of the Reichstag building that took place while... Hitler was um, in power Um, and and it was blamed on the communists at the time, even though there was some suggestion from contemporaries that it might have been the work of the Nazi party themselves. So this is what the history textbook writes. Um, I'm quoting, he, Hitler, called another election for March 1933 to try and get an overall Nazi majority in the Reichstag. So that, was, that election was planned for 1933 so he can get an overall Nazi majority. He was in a coalition before that election. Then, before the election on 27th of February, there was a dramatic development. This is what the textbook says. The Reichstag building burnt down. Hitler blamed the communists and declared that the fire was the beginning of a communist uprising. It goes on to say, Many Germans at the time thought that the Nazis might have started the fire themselves, and that 's as much as they say about the possibility that the fire was actually the work of the government of the day so reading that if you were an impressionable child, you might come away thinking, well it's more than likely that the communists were responsible, and people at the time thought it was the Nazis who were responsible but No other evidence is presented for that. So it was probably the communists who did it, not the government themselves. Now, that textbook was written in 2013, that history textbook. What I discovered with a little bit of research on the internet, the dreaded internet, (laughs) was that in 2001, in other words, 12 years before the publication of this history textbook, new research emerged that pointed strongly to the fire having been started by the Nazis themselves. And four major German historians vouched for the reliability of the new evidence that came forward. I won't go into it now, but you can read about it in 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 the full report. Now, my point is, why did the author of the history textbook, written in 2013, not allude to this new research, but shored up the theory that the fire was caused by the government of the day. And you might have thoughts of your own as to why they might not do that. Uh, Could it be, possibly, that um, children shouldn't be taught that governments do not always act in their interests? Could that be a reason? Could it be... uh, so that children are not aware that governments may engage activities of this kind, uh, activities that are known as false flags? Could it be that that they, they want to keep that away from children's awareness? Who knows? But what we can say with certainty is that the History Textbook from 2013 has done an inaccurate job of presenting the evidence regarding the Reichstag fire. Now, let's move on to the second category, because we want to leave time for discussion on maths and modern languages. Um, A mission of important information. Um, Well, what can I say if I just give you some headlines? Vaccines. Um, There's a statement in the General Science GCSE textbook that states that, quote, vaccines have helped control lots of communicable diseases that once were common in the UK brackets, e.g. polio, measles, whooping cough, rubella, mumps, tetanus. Well, why have I flagged this up as an omission? Well, first of all, polio, there's nothing mentioned there on um, the theory that polio may have been the result of DDT spraying initiated in 1945, an argument that was eloquently put forward by Dr. Biskind. In his article in 1953 in the American Journal of Digestive Diseases, no mention that polio may have had its origins in in a pesticide that was subsequently banned. And secondly, it says vaccines have helped control lots of communicable diseases. Um, But there's very little on um, the the, um, extensive evidence of the harm caused by vaccines. Other emissions, uh, GM foods, in the same textbook, Um, the text um, works is lyrical really about GM foods. It omits to mention the damage to human health, the damage to farmers who are forced to shell out every year on new seeds. It's a very partial account that we have of GM foods. Uh, Statins again equally. Is a very one sided account. They advocate for the effectiveness of satins. It's completely one sided, the account on satins. They refer to the widespread benefits of satins and limit the disadvantages to the fact that they can cause kidney failure, liver damage, and memory loss. In fact, they can cause far more damage than just that. So it looks as though they're offering a balanced argument. But in fact, it's, again, a rather partial picture. And they certainly don't mention that the results of clinical trials have have yet to be released by the pharmaceutical company that has the copyright on them. So we don't even now have the full picture on statins. And there's no mention of that in this GCSE textbook. And of course, the information on climate change is very one-sided. And there's no reference to any of the counter arguments produced on climate change. Third problem, I, I talked about context, that the context in which information is produced can, can often confuse the, the learner. I'll just give an example from the French textbook. In, in, in the French textbook I looked at, which is used at a well-known independent school, um, French is introduced... Uh, uh, as as a language that's spoken in many parts of the Francophone world, um, from Africa through to Asia, through to mainland France. And uh, the learner learns about the day in the life of people in France, but also day in the life of French-speaking people in Africa and Asia and so forth. Now, this is to push a global agenda um, in a textbook aimed at teaching the French language. And I'm not sure that this is, as somebody who did French as a first degree, that this is the most helpful way in which people can learn a foreign language. It's difficult enough picking up a new language, let alone um, hearing it spoken by people with different accents in different countries. Can you imagine trying to learn English as spoken through uh, somebody in Scotland, Yorkshire, Cornwall? And the South, I, I think it, it would it would confuse personally. Uh, and And moreover, why not focus on France and its enormously rich culture? As I say, I, I, I picked a, a French degree where I could read literature for four years. That's what I wanted to do, from medieval literature up to modern day literature. And what an enrich, enriching, vastly enriching experience this was. I don't know why we have to bring a global perspective to the learning of a modern language. And finally, the fourth conclusion was the lack of integrity in the advice offered. And I just want to cite as an example of this, some advice that appears in the Key Stage 3 CGT English textbook. Now, in this textbook, the learner is advised to remove any hesitancy in using exaggeration When advancing an argument, they're encouraged to exaggerate when advancing an argument because they're they're teaching people writing skills, English writing skills. And at this point, the textbook contrasts the effectiveness of an original sentence, which reads as follows Sometimes scientists think the earth is getting warmer quite quickly, so many people might not have enough food. That's the original sentence. I'll read it again. Sometimes, some scientists think the Earth is getting warmer quite quickly, so many people might not have enough food. They suggest that a better version of that sentence is the following. Quotes, many scientists believe the Earth is getting warmer at a frightening rate, causing billions of people to starve. So what can we say? The textbook, English textbook, is counselling children to move away from fact to hyperbole, exaggeration. Uh, I think uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, I, I think words fail me in terms of what I feel about that. Um, so those are the four conclusions from our study. Uh, I would suggest that given the size of the population that is at receiving end, of these textbooks, I said it's it, it's around about thirty five million over a ten year period, uh, a population that equals that of the most widely read newspaper in Britain, the Sun. Um, the fact that children are being exposed to inaccurate information, uh, information that omits counter arguments, that counsels exaggeration, I think we have very real cause to be concerned at the quality of education currently being offered. And textbooks gives us a handle on what's being offered. GC, I looked at key stage three, right up to A-level textbooks. And since textbooks are inextricably linked to the GCSE and A-level system, Mm. and for example, the second biggest publisher in Britain, Hodder Education, boasts on on its website about its close links with all the exam boards. If we're concerned about the textbooks, I think we have very real reason to be concerned also about GCSE and A-level exams. I'll just give you one quick example. Um, One of the publications I was given, which had been used in an academy school, was um, a series of magazines, geography magazines, used at A-level. And this publication was produced by Manchester University, And many of the articles were authored by professors and other academics from Manchester University. Many of them um, uh, presented one-sided arguments for climate change. A very large proportion of the articles did that. Um, One article doing just that was written by a chief examiner of one of the exam boards. And so I don't think it takes a rocket science to realize that If a chief examiner is producing one-sided arguments, then if you were to come along as a candidate and produce a two-sided argument in respect, say, of climate change, it might not go down a treat. It might might not get you the coveted top grade that you've worked hard to get. So I think we have lots of questions now to ask about the quality of education delivered in the government-controlled education system? Because I mentioned earlier, Prussian education was government-controlled. The Americans took a fancy to that. We now have government-controlled education in the UK. Should the future of education continue to be in the hands of government, or should it not? This is one question. And if you're home-educating, which you all are, can you confidently rely on textbooks? I would suggest not, and if not, well, then we need to create new textbooks. So this is the new world that I think Sarah and I were discussing before. Sarah's already done a lot of that work in, 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 a, in, an, in an extraordinary way. She's produced, as you know, um, a plethora of videos and materials on maths. So she started that. She's already gone down the road. She's a long way, a long way along this journey. Um, I suggest that we need to do this right across the curriculum. So, if there's anybody listening who's uh, a teacher, retired or active, who's interested in creating new materials for this new world of uncontrolled education, real education that does develop children as individuals and and doesn't just um, create one size fits all adult, then please, please do, do contact either Sarah or myself. And my, my, you can contact me again. I'll give you the two emails. Infotruthuniversity at protonmail.com or um, learning Holidays at protonmail.com. Incidentally, if you're interested in the questioning science conference in the Peak District, it's 10th, 10 to the 14th of August. Just email me on that um, address anyway. So, the brave new world of the future, the really brave new world, will involve very possibly creating new textbooks. And with it, we'll have to come a new exam system. We're starting to create a new university, which Sarah and I will talk about on another occasion, Truth University. The website for that is www.truthuniversity.co.uk. And that could well be the body under which a new exam system sits. So I think we've still got a bit of time, haven't we, Sarah, to wrap up and to talk about what's happening in maths and modern languages. Can I just say a little bit about modern languages? Because, as I say, my first degree was in French. This year, in January, the government, because they still control education, (laughs) in their wisdom, decided, and the the committee that decided this is chaired by the head of Ofqual, that for the three modern languages of Spanish, German, and French, Um, the foundation level, GCSG, uh, vocabulary requirement should be limited to 1,200 words. And the higher level requirement for modern languages should be limited to 1,700 words. And I would just like to make two points about this. I'm not going to express my opinion at this point, purely make two points. According to uh, a view expressed on the internet, the higher level vocabulary limit of 1,700 words is 44% or even higher, smaller than the vocabulary requirement for the old O level. The person said that it was at least 44% smaller. And the second comment I would make is in respect to the vocabulary of young children. The A three-year-old child, um, if it's progressing, well... Will have a vocabulary of nine hundred to thousand words. Well, that's close to your foundation level upper limit of one thousand two hundred words. That's the vocabulary a little, little more than that of a three-year-old. In terms of the limit for the uh, higher level GCSE of one thousand seven hundred words, the vocabulary of a four-year-old that's progressing well will be one thousand five hundred to one thousand six hundred words. So we're talking the vocabulary then of a four-year-old for our higher level GCSEs. Now, I happen to know somebody who took GCSE French back in 2015, which is still seven years ago. And they got 100% in their French GCSE. And they could hardly string a sentence of French together. And they'd never been taught what's called governance of verbs. I remember learning these tirelessly when I was doing my O-level in French. If you want to express um, "I want to do something," "I want to begin to do something," in English we just use the single word "to" between the two verbs. "I want to do." It's simple in English, but in French you have a choice. You have a choice of the intermediate word. It can either, there can either be nothing there, like if you use the French word "vouloir" to want. Je veux partir, I want to go. You don't have anything between the wanting and the going. That's the rule in French. Um, but there are other verbs where you do have something, and you can have either an uh with a grave grave accent on it, or a de. So if you begin to do something in French, you commence a faire quelque chose. Je commence à faire mes devoirs, I'm beginning to do my homework. Um sometimes you have de between the two verbs. And I used to painstakingly be told to learn long lists, um, you know, of how these verbs work. Because if you don't do that, then you can never stand a chance of speaking this language. And this person who did their GCSE in 2015 and got literally 100% in their French GCSE, um, they'd never been taught governance of verbs. They had no clue whether you had nothing between two verbs, or you had an r, or or Udde. So that's modern languages. It's probably worse. It's, It's going down now with this vocabulary prescription as of January this year. I think I'll shut up on modern languages. Hand you over
0: to you, Sarah, for maths. Thank you, Gloria. Well, my audience are probably sick to the back teeth of me lecturing about the disaster that is mathematics education in the UK. And not only in the UK, actually, we've obviously limited our discussion to that today, but I'm aware of these problems in America, Australia and elsewhere, the exact same problems at the exact same time. Where have we heard that before? Thank you so much for explaining the carnage that is the uh, modern foreign languages system in UK schools. I've personal experience of this. When I emigrated to France, there is no English person in this area that can speak French properly at all they cannot be understood where i live there is um, no english spoken at all and i really really mean that there is no english spoken at all except between english people so you constantly are listening into conversations that are a complete mess between french speakers and english speakers who are trying to speak french it doesn't work and you've laid out beautifully there some of the the main culprits for that it doesn't seem to matter education level, whether you've been to grammar school or a state school, they are having the same problems in speaking real French to real French people. And I have to say, from having listened to you, it, it would seem to me to be entirely a deliberate attempt to ensure that we cannot communicate in each other's languages. And I see the same deliberate deconstruction of confidence and competence in mathematics. And I've proved that extensively using textbooks, worksheets, online websites, examinations, all of it, all of it. It's, it is a mess. And I, something that stuck out from what you've mentioned this morning would be the words of the, or the aims, the boasted results even, of the Prussian education system, which brags that it produces obedient soldiers, obedient workers, obedient civil servants and obedient civilians who thought alike on most issues. I think you've laid out beautifully exactly how that is taking place and the kinds of materials that are being used against children in the classroom in the UK. And I challenge parents and grandparents who might be listening to us to really question why they are sending their children to school because having listened to me and having listened to you they can no longer conclude that they are sending their children to school to have some kind of education some kind of academically rigorous valuable education I put it to the audience that you are sending your children to school for free childcare. but you know we like to be
1: positive don't we Sarah. So, and so we have to create, bring into being something that's better than what we have. I don't think the system can be repaired as, as it stands. I think we have to mo- move away and, and create something independent of governments that will serve our children better and will strengthen their talents. And if they want to be philosophers, so be it, <laughs> um, and poets and, and so on. Um, but Put critical thinking back on the map, not rote learning. Present everything through evidence, uh, two-sided debate. This will be the education of the future. I do believe in rigor myself. Uh, I know there are divisions of opinion on, on what education should look like in the future. Um, my, my own experience of teaching and learning is that one is sh- shortchanging somebody by not Um, in the case, say, of modern and modern language, providing them with a detailed understanding of grammar that actually you, you, you you can't master a language without an understanding of grammar. But that's not to say it can't be enjoyable. And that's down to good teaching to make the, the, the uh, um, learning of grammar enjoyable. And there are ways of making it enjoyable and fun. Absolutely. There are ways. Um, and so I don't think making language, I mean, what one of the government's arguments for reducing the vocabulary requirement of modern languages, quoting from their website, is to make modern languages more accessible and attractive for students because there's been a decline in the number of children following modern languages. And I've, I found a cynical suggestion that this may serve the interests of schools because modern language is quite difficult and they may not have helped the schools with their league table standing. And so the schools may may have been quite happy to see children drop modern languages if it helped with their standing in the league tables. But um, this is what the government's website says, to make the subjects more accessible and attractive for students. These are the new vocabulary requirements that they're introducing. Well, there are other ways to make subjects accessible and attractive, not just by making things easier. I mean, I I, I could argue that would have the reverse effect, because you can't express yourself when you, when you don't have a proper foundation. And so it would go for everything. In the advent of COVID, for example, even the, even the performance music exams have changed their requirements. You can, you can record the pieces that you're learning now, and you no longer need to carry out the oral tests. You don't need to perform all of the scales that are set for the grade. You can choose a what one of a couple of sets, uh, and when when you know in advance which scales you're going to play and in which hand, of course that 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 narrows the work that you do, and the narrowing in the music exams had already gone on over a number of years. I mean, I remember the time when for grade five music you had to play all the scales, major and minor. That reduced a few years ago to a, a sample of scales, and now. In the advent with the advent of covid uh you you select i mean I think you have one board i don't know if it's true of the other one. it may well be There are two main boards uh you select <laughs> one of two groups and then you know precisely what you're going to play. all the chance element is chance is everything in preparing for an exam you You cover a wide syllabus in the expectation will be asked a small proportion um. Uh, you'd be asked to to, to show expertise in a small proportion of the whole area. Now, you're only asked to demonstrate expertise in a given small proportion of the overall area. And I would argue, I'm an amateur pianist, that it really is helpful to to develop sight-reading skills, to develop oral skills, and, dare I say it, to learn scales and arpeggios. And, and the requirement for those
0: has been whittled down as well. It would seem to me that the removal of rigour, whether it's learning the multiplication tables, whether it's learning tables of conjugated verbs, whether it's scales and arpeggios, the removal of this repetitive, tough learning, I think it's a thinly veiled attempt at inclusion. I don't actually think that's the real aim at all. I think it's a, an aim at dumbing down, at dragging everybody down to the lowest possible level. Repetition is the mother of all learning. And just because some repetitious things are boring, it doesn't mean that they're not valuable. Exactly. And if people get into the habit of that
1: kind of rigorous learning in one discipline, then they're prepared to undertake it in another. It, it, that kind of attention to detail and rigor is at the root of, I think of so much learning. It's the opposite
0: of fast food cooking,
1: isn't it? The rigor.
0: Precisely. And it's being actively discouraged in in classrooms. Oh, it's too tough on the children and all of this stuff. If you think back to the things that you really value from your own academic career or your own sports career or whatever you've had, it's always the times where you've faced adversity You've had to work extremely hard to overcome adversity of some kind, and you've succeeded against perhaps the odds. These are things that we treasure as. Hu- these are valuable learning and life experiences as human beings. And it would seem to me that the sanitization of whether it's academics, sports, arts is actually taking the, the challenge and therefore the joy out of everything. I think
1: you're absolutely right, and I think the fact you mentioned sport. It's extremely interesting because if there is any activity that demands repetition of skills, it is sport. No, you can't become a top tennis player. This is one for of sure. the reasons it's difficult to become a top tennis player because you need, when you're starting out, to have so many lessons and lessons are expensive. Um, so it, it's difficult for, for many people to, to uh, become a professional tennis player because they can't, they haven't got the means to get the necessary repetition to develop their skills. And for sports, you can read any other discipline. Music. Um, sure, I don't know if you're, you've heard this joke. Somebody who's um, gets lost in New York uh, is aiming to get to Carnegie Hall, you know, the famous concert hall, and stops somebody and says, excuse me, can you tell me the way to Carnegie Hall? And the person says, oh, yes, of course, practice, practice, practice. That's the way to Carnegie Hall. And so it is for everything.
0: Amen to that. Listen, thank you very, very much indeed for your, your generous time this morning. I've learned so much from you. I've just been sat listening to you fascinated. Thank you for sharing your research. Um, I really, really appreciate that there's somebody out there doing that still against all of the odds And I would encourage the listeners to get in touch and I will be posting links to your secondary school surveys because we want people to fill those in to let us know their opinions on secondary school education. And also, I think it would be wonderful if people would um, consider supporting your questioning science holidays. And I think you do questioning history also. The science one, I believe, is in August in the Lake District. So I will make sure I leave links to those things. In the email and in underneath the uh, the podcast, is there anything you would like to add in in closing? I of course will invite you back to talk to us about the Truth University itself because I'm I personally am very excited to hear more about that. But is there anything else you would like to leave us with on schools that I might have perhaps missed or, or not asked you? Well, I, I'd like to thank you, Sarah, for for making it
1: possible for us to have this discussion of what's wrong. But I want to put the emphasis on trying to put this right. So. I would just reiterate, if there's anybody listening today who thinks that they can contribute to this better world of education, starting with new textbooks, please do contact Sarah or myself. And um, parents, educators, students, employers listening, uh, it'd be really helpful if you could complete the survey that a number of us have prepared to um, capture your thoughts on secondary school education today because we need to get the views of a
0: large prospectus of people while we move forward. So thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Professor Moss and I will leave links to everything we've talked about in this podcast underneath as ever. And I urge you to take action when and where you can on education. It is crucial. It is crucial for the advancement of society. It's not just about children. Those children grow into the adult's of the future. They will shape the future for everybody. And I think it's important that we keep alive those of us who who wish to, you know, retain the sovereignty, even of our own thoughts and our right to express them. So I I urge you to take action. Thank you for joining me. And I really look forward to our next discussion on thetruthuniversity.co.uk. Thank you, Professor Moss. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit saraplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.